ora and welcome to the New Zealand Improv Festival Audio Archive, bringing you live recordings and conversations from New Zealand's annual celebration of spontaneous theatre. This season, we bring you our conversation series. In each episode, a trio of improvisers come together to talk about what lights them up, what challenges them, and what keeps them excited about the future of improv. In this episode, we hear from Tara McEntee and Susan Williams from Te Whanganuia Tara, Wellington, and Ryan Knighton from Te Papa Oia, Palmerston North. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at Bats Theatre in October 2021. And now presenting the NZIF 2021 Conversation Series. Hello and welcome to uh, this session of our the conference, in fact, it's called. Uh, we are joined by three amazing improvisers. Uh, we have Tara McEntee, Ryan Knighton, and uh, Susan Williams. Thank you for joining us, and I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Malcolm. Um, hello, this is Tara McEntee. Um, I am an improviser in Wellington, but I was trained in Christchurch. I've been improvising for... Ooh, Mm, 15 years, I think? Something like that. Uh, kia ora, my name is Ryan Knighton. I'm based in Te Papioia, Palmerston North. Uh, I'm the educator for Spontaneous, which is our theatre company there. I've been doing improv for about eight years. And next to me is... Kia ora, I'm Susan Williams. I am a Wellington improviser and member of WIT, Wellington Improv Troupe. Uh, I'm also... Uh, proudly uh, functionally blind, disabled, and queer. Yay! Yay. Uh, and I've been improvising for about, uh, I, I keep losing count, about seven years, I think. Um, so Jen's given us some things that we're all, we've all said that we're interested in talking about as improvisers. And the one that's kind of stuck out to me is beginner improv. What do you think is the best place to start improvising? Uh, it's Susan here. And I think possibly the best thing for people who are new to improv is to create a supportive environment. Um, ideally, either one where there's someone experienced to sort of um, help them adapt to it or even experienced players to play with. Um, I'm big into like mixed improv levels and having everyone play together, but I think also just a space where the most important thing is that failure is amazing um, mm, yeah. and that there are no stakes. Like, if you get up on stage and everything goes terribly and COVID alarm goes off halfway through and the theatre goes dark and the, you know, <laughs> everything implodes, still nothing bad is going to happen. Mm. Mm. So, you, Susan, you're talking about um, rooms where, it's, where failure is, is celebrated? Yeah. Um, what, uh, have you been in those rooms before and um, what things have helped uh, facilitate that sort of environment for you? Um, I think when I was beginning, um, I remember, it might have been Jen actually, uh, a very exciting game of Losable, um, which is of course the game where uh, you cheer on anyone who uh, misses the ball at, at, like with the best enthusiasm and everybody misses the ball. Um, so just practicing failing and practicing like joyful agains, I remember in my, you know, when, when I was first doing classes, like, you know, just the cheerful again, um, whenever anything went quote unquote wrong. And I think 
The other thing I remember is someone saying um, that there isn't any bad choices, there are just better choices. It, it, it's a long process, and I think the other thing is seeing that every improviser is still learning. So as, as, I, as I improved a little bit and sort of came to things like in if and was like, oh, <laughs> nobody has all the answers because there are no all the answers. So I think, yeah, just encouraging joyful failure. How about you, um, Ryan? Wh wh what are your experiences with um, newbies and... So I, I've done a lot of uh, workshop facilitation over the past few years, so it's really interesting to hear uh, from a participant's perspective what you are seeking in terms of like that um, environment. And um, something I have realised recently is that uh, the way I teach or facilitate uh, is not up to the participants of the workshop to, to meet. I should be altering and meeting the expectation of the room uh, and what that means is uh, is setting out like really clearly what I what I'm asking for from people. So removing that uh, expectation of like do good improv or like be funny and just uh, straight away being like what what do you think you want to uh, what do you think that I want to see from you me Ryan as the workshop facilitator and people going. Um, Oh, like uh, good offers or um, like strong characters are, are two that I get a lot. And I really, I have to be like, okay, now we need to let all that go and just sort of, um, I just give you permission to fail. So to play and to fail. Uh, and that's all you have to do. And then any learning that comes out of that is um, we, we reflect on as a group at the end. Yeah. So that's sort of my take on how to get beginning people into it is to... Um, I don't know about, about both of you, but gosh, I've been nervous in some rooms before. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Um, the way I got into improv was through probably a, a way that a lot of people got into it, which is high school theatre sports competitions. And the way that that started, I wasn't at a, um, uh, like a private school where we could afford to get the court jesters in to come and teach us. So we were learning from the theatre sports manual, which was a book, um, a book printed bunch of A4 pieces of paper and we had all these games that were written in and the rules of the games were written in and you had the basics of like, um, you know, always yes and your partner and make people look good and th these kind of like improv rules um, that you would then put on top of the rules of the game and it was just constantly like rules and how do you fit into this box. So we weren't actually learning how to improvise so much as learning how to yeah, f follow the rules of these games and, and make it so that the arc of a yearbook worked the same every time. And it didn't matter what content was in there, it didn't matter what words came out, the scenes looked the same every time. Um, and so I feel like I've kind of gone as far away from that as I possibly could now because I can't stand short-form games that have heaps of rules. And I will actively seek out, like, e even in a long-form format, I'm like, I'd... I don't want to do any. I don't want to do any rules. I, don't, I want to be like, here's a concept. Let's do it for an hour and a half and see how it goes. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily because it was a bad place to start or a good place to start with all of these rules and requirements. But it, yeah, I mean, it's definitely shaped what I like or what I think is good improv now. So um, in our company, we only do short form, mm. which is 
exhausting after doing short form for several years, as I'm sure a lot of people know. Um, so we, we've got a good handle on the rules of games. Um, but one thing I, I, I try to try to push, uh, not push, that sounds really bad. Um, one thing I try to encourage um, is uh, not playing perfectly. So if, you, if you're going to play perfectly every time, then there's no risk. So when I see people who have been uh, playing for a long time, I try get them to play at a, a quicker pace. It's a thing I call like, speed wobbles or like you know that moment at a circus where someone is on the tightrope and they like wobble and everyone goes oh even though there's a net underneath mm. we know we know it's going to be fine uh that sort of that's buy-in for me that's excitement um so i'm happy for people to uh to to know the rules but they don't necessarily have to to follow them or if they if they do how can they push themselves to a new level where they can't do it perfectly because a, a perfect yearbook is, um, it's, it's kind of nebulous, right? There's, there's no such thing. But um, a, a yearbook where someone is, is pushing themselves to do something they've never done before and will, it will inevitably, part of that will be failure, which their supporting players will catch them, that's really, that's really exciting to me. And it comes back to that idea of like, oh, failure is good. Yeah. And I think you hit on another important thing there too, Ryan, which is um, having each other's backs and knowing that um, someone has your back, I think, is a great way to be free and play um, and is an important thing to, uh, to teach as well. And, 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 you know, like, you know, side playing and, um, you know, supporting a scene without stealing focus and that kind of thing. I think is a good thing to dive into with, I guess, any level of improviser, really. Um, yeah, just not only because it's a great skill to have, but because it makes you feel supported. So if you were to have someone come up to you, Susan, and they've never seen improv before, they've never done improv before, but they've said, what's the first thing that I need to know? What would you say? Um, <laughs> uh, I think... Run? Um, no, I, I, I think that it's meant to be fun. No, I was just thinking that I, I semi-had this situation. Because <laughs> um, uh, I've just been doing, in my workshop, I had um, four people who'd either never done any improv at all or had done, like, a little bit of um, high school drama class mm. kind of thing. So I guess we had, like, a bit of a round robin around the room of, like, hey, what should people who are new to improv... No, and I think some of the things that came up there weren't actually my ideas, but I completely agree with. But, like, improv is life anyway. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it should be fun. It should just be, I, I think, would be my main one, is have fun. That's great. What about you, Tara? Jen, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Great. I, I guess it would just be fuck it up. Like, um, and, and know that there is no right way to do it and you're going to fuck it up and you should fuck it up and if you're not fucking it up, you're not doing improv. Yeah. Put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you want it to be perfect, then may I suggest getting the script and, and the cast and workshopping yeah, it and <laughs> take it to Broadway. Um, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think we'll, uh, we'll move on from that topic, if that sounds good. Um, I, I feel like it would be, uh, it's an incredible opportunity um, 
that we have, especially with you, Susan, to talk about accessibility in improv. Yay! Um, so I was wondering, um, maybe, sorry to put you on the spot, but no, no. Um, accessibility in improv, what does that mean to you? Um, I guess the thing is, it's not, to me specifically, it's, the thing is, everyone who has access needs is going to have slightly different access needs. Um, in general, it's a case of considering as many broad groups as possible and then also having, um, say this is the thing I always like to try and have, is contact us. <laughs> Either as an audience or an improviser or whatever, if you're not sure, like having that in there, being like, hey, I may not have realised that your access need is that you're deathly allergic to chocolate and um, we need to make sure that there's absolutely none in the building. Maybe an out there example, but yeah, you, you simply cannot guess every access need or ever meet every access need because there are going to be conflicting ones. Um, so I think it's a case of communicating. So um, again, this was something in the workshop I just did. So I had a bunch of um, Blind Vision participants and I mucked up. I um, sort of assumed uh, that other people's access needs would, as workshop participants and actors, would be closer to mine than they were. So that turned into a really great conversation. Once I realised my mistake, <laughs> um, turned into a really great conversation that brought out better things. So for someone, their access barrier was that they've never seen mine. So they were doing um, ha having trouble with the physical side of theatre because they've never seen what mine is like. And for someone else, I was like, cool, we're going to adapt something inaccessible. And she's like, actually, that's accessible for me. <laughs> so we had to go through and find something else that was inaccessible. So very much a case of creating the broad strokes and then talking to the individual people. And does that sort of tie in with, um, like, connecting with your players and creating, like, uh, a rapport with everyone? Is that understanding their their needs to uh, enable them to succeed on stage. Yeah, and I mean, everyone is an expert on themselves, right? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I mean, that's for everybody. Like, um, And it's not that you should never, I guess, help someone extend, but also it's a case of knowing which boundary is, you know, which, which is something that they may want to extend and, you know, work on and which is a hard hard no and I think that's the same with access but there's also in that adapting so can't do it this way how do we adapt it another way do we do a pop-up storybook where everyone says what position they're in um how about you two in terms of I guess um something that was mentioned was inclusivity in, in general more more broadly so, so I do some venue management as well. So accessibility for me is from the audience, like audience perspective. Yeah. Part of that, like one one thing I'm quite passionate about is trying to remove a financial barrier as entry to um, to the arts. So for for projects that I can do it for, I will make sure that uh, they are koha, so people can come and experience what it is, and then pay what is um, give a koha. And hopefully, the, my, my intention with that is um, that accessibility will feed into 
inclusivity because if you see something that you're like, oh wow, that was amazing, uh, as I, I'm pretty sure we can all agree mm-hmm. that improv is something pretty special when you watch it for the first time, you go like, oh. To be able to have people feel like they can they can come to a thing and then also access the performance side of it without feeling priced out because because of that financial barrier to entry. It's very hard because I feel like we are making like companies uh, a lot of the time that have to uh, make enough money to, to hire venues to do all these things. And it feels like those values are really uh, discordant with, um, with my like core philosophy and what I've heard a lot at this festival, people's core philosophy, is about um, you know, uh, just the purity of improv and that, that's, that clashes with this bureaucracy that we, that we have to do uh, here. Um, and we, we can do the best we can, but... Because everyone who has other barriers in life is more likely to have financial barriers as well. That's not, not guaranteed, but you know, if, if there's barriers, it's going to make everything harder, including earning money. So the one I'm working on, um, where, uh, which is actually a scripted show, is we're using the uh, BATS model of the difference ticket, which is meant to be extra money for the production, uh, and instead using it as a buy one, give one. Mm. on tickets um so those kind of systems are you know so important like still valuing your art and whatever even if it is in monetary terms which i agree is like me <laughs> but you know you necessary to have venues and create stuff um how about you um tara there's a few things that have just popped into my mind as we're talking because one is from the performer side and making improv accessible for performers and i think that's not there's, there's all sorts of different ways that improv is inaccessible as well as ways that it is accessible. So it's, you know, things like the fact that you don't have to go to a whole bunch of rehearsals to be able to do an improv show makes it really accessible for people who are maybe time poor. Um, but then the fact that improv is uh, hella scary for a lot of people can make it a lot less accessible. And then same for audience members, like the type of people who might go to a uh, unnamed New Zealand playwright um, that rhymes with Modra Mall play. Um, <laughs> great. Um, the, the kind of people who would go to that kind of show and have the money to pay to go to that kind of show probably are the kind of people who wouldn't come to an improv show or would think, oh, God, I couldn't go to an improv show. What if I get called up on stage? Um, which is also the classic fear. So I think there's a, there's a whole bunch of different accessibility angles that you can come at it from. And then... There's another piece which is representation where if, the, if you look around and the people who you're playing with on stage are all of the same gender or the same ethnicity or the same um, gender presentation or, or sexual orientation or anything like that, then you can kind of feel... So, I mean, for me, I've certainly felt like the only one on stage who's representing a whole number of minorities, including ethnic, gender and disability. And it's... Um, the same for the audience. If you look around the audience and the audience are all young people or older people, then you kind of go, am I meant to be here? Are old people meant to be here? Are young people meant to be here? What's the... Yeah, so it's probably the, the most accessible and the least accessible of the art forms. <laughs> it has the potential to be the most accessible. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the really uh, lovely things that um, you're both talking about there is we do have the autonomy because it's such a free-flowing art form to be able to uh, change it 
in a way that empowers our cast uh, for them to create something not only unique because people are bringing so much of themselves to it, um, but for that uniqueness to not be a uh, token rep representation, but rather like core to the work. And then so the stories coming out of that work uh, are really interesting and unique and true. Mm. That also reminds me of a, th a thing that I have a gripe with, which is um, <laughs> Tara gets on a soapbox. Um, it's the, this thing that um, we, we as a collective community can acknowledge that we have uh, issues with having people of ethnic minorities on stage. And we often have issues as a, a general community with um, gender minorities, including non-binary as well as women on stage. These are This improv has historically been a a straight white male space um, and it's kind of changing progressively and we all sit in this room and acknowledge that but it starts it starts in the womb um, it starts <laughs> like it starts for me it started in high school theatre sports when my best friend and I were doing it in year nine and then as she was going through puberty, became very self-conscious about herself and her body and her presentation and um, essentially, you know, being being looked at. And it made her not want to do improv anymore. And even though she and I were on an even playing field in year nine, she pulled away and stopped doing improv, even though she was, she was really good. Same with uh, friends who were maybe of a lower socioeconomic status or had less money or schools that had less money couldn't afford to have a theatre sports program, didn't have a teacher who could do the program, did, couldn't afford to join the program at the theatre, um, and therefore didn't get into improv when they were 13, 14. And so that has translated to a, a lack of representation at the adult level. Fix it. <laughs> I don't know how, but fix it. <laughs> I teach theatre sports in high schools at the moment in the Manawatu area, and I make sure to offer uh, low decile schools, free teaching because I recognise that problem, mm. and that's the that's the that's one tiny way that I can not feel guilty about the opportunities that I have, and to to stop the thing being insular. As a as someone who has come up through it, I can now I can now give back, and all I have to give is my time, and that's for me that that helps that thing, mm. but it but it's not. That, that is one tiny thing I can do. Um, but it's definitely not everything I can do. Yeah, I, <laughs> I want to jump onto your soapbox too, Tara. Go for it. Because, <laughs> um, like, I was incredibly lucky. Like, everything, like, slipped into place for me. Like, um, we were relatively low socioeconomic, but there was this amazing teacher who, like, dropped her prices depending on what people could pay. The kind of thing that you were saying, Ryan, um, kind of thing. And that's how I managed to afford to go into theatre. And then, because I only went blind five years ago, um, I already had that space to start in with improv. So what's what I realised was, I, I keep going, I keep moaning like, oh, there's no other blindies in, in, in Wellington improv. And then I'm like, cool, so what am I doing <laughs> to fix that? Um, and I think when I delved into it, I realised that, um, yeah, because I was already, like, experienced enough to come in and say, cool, adapt for me. Um, <laughs> and most people did. You know, like, I, I've talked to, you know, multiple blind friends who were literally um, told, no, you can't be in the school play, we can't think of how to include you. Or, no, you can't come to this drama class, sorry, you're blind. 
And that just makes me incredibly angry for a start. <laughs> but also very much on the, um, yes, we need to start early, but also we need to go and get the people who wanted to and were pushed out and say, look, we swear we're trying to change. Come back. <laughs> um, and create all of the opportunities, I guess, that, that we can to bring people back in who've been either actively or passively kicked out. All the way through, bring in, <laughs> bring in people, make, make make people welcome. And if people aren't coming to your to your thing, uh, do what you were saying, Ryan, and take 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 improv to um to different communities. That was that was definitely not me trying to be like, oh look at Ryan, he's such no, a no, nice no. guy. Uh, um, that's that's me being like, oh, I've, I have the opportunity, and this is one thing I can do, and I would love to challenge everyone in this room and listening yeah. uh, to think, what can you do, and um, what little volunteer thing can you do, and go out to um, grow our community to uh, to flourish with with all the with with so many different uh, greeneries. I think it's little things as well. Like, if someone does turn up, make sure you also sort of make sure that you have a safe space in place um, where some things are not acceptable. And even your own, you know, biases. I, I've done it. Like I say, I did it in the workshop the other day. I guess, yeah, dialogues mm. continually. Speaking of dialogues, it might be time now to... We've got a, a number of people in the room who might want to ask us incendiary Ooh. questions so I can get up on higher soapboxes. Jen has a question. Jen, say your question. We're growing our improv community and we're trying to, I mean, for like some people are trying to make this their job, you know, make a career out of it and be able to pay their bills and all those things. How do you reconcile uh, making sure that people still value what it is we do and while also making it freely available to those who want it but can't access it? Because I think that sometimes those priorities can, can, can compete in ways that make it really difficult. And I'm interested to hear how you feel about that. Uh, go after big businesses. <laughs> <laughs> like, gen genuinely, um, improv in a uh, corporate sense is uh, it's an incredible team builder. It's it's incredible for all those reasons. And um, businesses have too much money, and they 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 have some of that set aside for like, oh, what team builder are we going to do? How are we going to bring our team together? Improv is actually perfect for that. So um, make if if you're trying to make a business out of it, make your big bucks there for um, you know give back to a workplace that has probably in some way exploited its workers. Um, <laughs> Generally, that's how I believe capitalism works. But <laughs> uh, uh, and then and then set up that as one thing, and then for your uh, to cleanse yourself, to <laughs> to to lift your heart, uh, do the do the do the volunteer sort of stuff where where you can. That Basically, would... be the Robin Hood of improv. <laughs> nice. Yeah, oh, I have to repeat my joke now. You do. I said, be the Robin Hood of improv. Ha 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 ha! Thanks, team. Emma has a question. Um, I've got a question probably for Susan, I guess. Um, so you have physical disabilities and things that, are, um, that you can see, but I know people have uh, emotional disabilities sometimes, things, traumas and I'm guessing things like that, and I just wonder if you have any experience working with those sorts of people and how to best look after them, because sometimes I know as a teacher I want to push people gently and I, I, I find that really hard and I'm constantly putting my foot in my mouth. 
there's no perfect way to do it, but um, creating a room where you can go in and out with no questions asked. And um, you can either have someone follow you or not follow you. The other great thing to have is a mental health first aider, if you can. That's a great thing that any large enough thing should have. Um, I know NZF IF has had one in the past, and that was fabulous. Um, I've had a few times I've had panic attacks in rehearsals or improv things, and the people who have been most tuned in to me have gone, cool, something is wrong. You may not be able to articulate that right now, but how about we go out of the room? So I guess, yeah, being in, as in tune as you can, but also not making, like, like I said, I can't speak for everyone, but I know with anxiety, one of my <laughs> biggest anxiety fears is having everyone make a massive deal about my anxiety. <laughs> um, and like, you know, like you picture this ring where everyone's like, are you okay, 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 okay. And, and it's like, so I guess giving people options of like, cool, so you can say this word to mean that you don't want anyone to follow you. Or um, if you do, just say, I, I, I want a person and leave or something like that. Um, those things in place. Um, you can also have conversations about if people have triggers, if they're comfortable um, sharing that. And yeah, just getting to know your people. Yeah, it's the communication again, yeah. right? Which is yeah. something that, um, this is another targets on a soapbox. I think we've fucked up how we do consent and improv because we've started doing this thing at the start of every workshop called check-ins, right? And it's this thing where everyone goes around the circle and you check in how you feel emotionally, physically, blah, blah, blah. And I've been in check-ins recently where people have said oh no boundaries and I've gone no no you have boundaries you everyone has boundaries um but we've created this culture of um actually if you say something in those check-ins you're out of the ordinary whereas everyone has something I feel like everyone will have something that they don't want I I don't want to be picked up I don't want to be tickled I don't want to this I don't want to talk about this thing I don't want that and we, 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 for some reason, have created this, like, check-in circle where actually we're not checking in with each other. We're just all saying, I'm fine. Which you, which, what use is that? How, but I also don't know how to fix it. Ryan, fix it. <laughs> I can't. Um, uh, any, any other questions? I just want to jump on that one, though, and say consent practice is amazing. It's not perfect, but uh, yeah, if you ever get the chance, I don't, I don't know if you are one or have a chance to work with an uh, intimacy director. I remember one workshop where we practiced uh, like communicating and being like, uh, do you want to shake hands? And then practicing saying, no, actually I don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yay, but yes, absolutely, you're right. It, it's messed up and broken. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Hello. Um, this is mostly for you, Susan, again, but also you other two have experience running things and probably have insights. Um, a lot of the way we connect in improv is based on sight. Is so it? <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious, um, what, are, what do you find is the best way to connect for yourself with other people? Um, so for me... Um, I'll, I'll uh, check that it's okay with people and then I'll often um, connect physically. So I'll put um, even just a circle where we pass uh, a, a, a zip or a zap or a clap or whatever around. I'll put hands on people on either side so I can feel their movements. 
an important one, and for me as well, listening is um, even more of an improv skill because <laughs> um, I'm listening to what people say, but also to where they are in the space. So, well, at the, at the start of an exercise, we'll be like, cool, when you step forward, stomp, <laughs> so that Susan knows. Old favorite, communication. <laughs> so yeah, it's nice to know who I'm up with. So people saying those words and stuff like that. And then sometimes the other day, I actually ended up just being like, cool, this isn't working. There's six people in this scene and three theater boxes. I'm just going to um, become a two-headed monster with this other person. And um, I'm, I'm not being ableist on that, like we were doing a D&D &D thing. It was an actual monster. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, do the scene that way, join together and see what fun things can come out of that. So um, there's lots of ways to connect that are not eye contact. <laughs> One that I really like doing is um, laughing yoga, where, where everyone just puts their heads in the centre. You all lie on your backs and face upwards. Everyone puts their heads next to each other. Hopefully no one has nits. And you just, um, you just let the laughter happen organically you don't you don't fake it and it, it's one of the most joyous things and you're not looking at anyone but just the feeling of everyone in the room pissing themselves with laughter over literally nothing for some reason has been one of the best warming connecty type things I've ever done see I love soundscapes for that same reason something mm. about lying with your head and in, in into a circle and then listening to each other <laughs> I've been trying a thing where whenever I do a scene with someone I just treat them like they're my best friend. I try to get to that emotional place um, where I find something about the person that I'm working with. I find one thing and let that snowball about all the, all the wonderful things about them and then go in with that energy of like, this is, this is the best person in this moment and um, like trying to like genuinely find a reason to, to love and be, be with someone in a moment and for me, that's that's been really helpful in, uh, in connecting and finding flow and finding a spark in scenes um, when I found myself on autopilot before, yeah. Um, this is going back to your talk about beginners, um, and uh, I know it was, it was brought up that a lot of people find it in high school, but then some people come to it in late, later in life. Um, do you have any ideas or thoughts on what beginners need at different ages? So if you're a beginner at 13 versus if you're a beginner at, at 20 or more? When would you guys have considered yourselves to be beginners? Like what age? Um, nine and 20. Um, <laughs> I don't mean 29, I mean twice. <laughs> uh, for me, it's probably uh, from 20 to 22, two years of being a beginner, I would say. Yeah, I'd say probably until I was between when I was 12 and 16, something like that. So, I mean, I guess we've got a, broad range there is the, the classic thought that as you get older your imagination becomes more restricted so it's possible that the best place to start for people who are older is actually just um releasing the shackles from the concept that oh there simply couldn't be a, a two-headed two monster that's not real um yes yeah, starting from there also it's not just there couldn't be a two-headed monster but what will people think of me if I say there's a two-headed monster yeah. Um, there's a lot of self-censoring before other people can censor you, I think, with adults. I'm going to give a really broad answer. Uh, I feel like in youth, um, I'm 
trying to get people to, uh, they're taking in everything and I'm trying to get them to hone in on their partner and for, for adults I'm trying to get them out of themselves and honing in on their partner. So it all ends up with the partner, right? The people around you. You want to speed adults up and slow kids down in a way. Um, I, I found with some improv thing, like, yeah, um, kids have so many amazing ideas as a matter of course, I think. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and you uh, have to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <Yeah>. Slow down. <laughs> but I think it would be great if, Oh, well, yes, yeah, soapbox again. Society, can you stop turning wonderful, imaginative kids into repressed, anxious adults, please? <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> what I found when I've taught um, like 11, 12-year-olds is they've got so much energy and so many things that they're thinking about that they, as you said, A, can't connect with their partners and B, can't narrow it down to actually tell something that's coherent to the people in front of them, mm. tell a coherent story. And then whereas um, adults become so hindered by what's right and what's wrong and how to do it properly and how to do it like the people on TV, that they um, they can't do anything. And they, they do the... The kids will do the, yes, and, 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 and the adults will go, yes. <laughs> and finding the middle ground, I guess, is important mm. I, I guess I guess what is being a beginner if we're all always learning anyway mm. and maybe mm. maybe not being a beginner is you've stopped learning and then if you've stopped learning maybe you need to seek more learning in a, in a different way or yeah does that make sense mm. like if you're always yeah. learning yeah, aren't you I, always a beginner are you always beginning <laughs> if you're learning something new I, yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of weight put on, you know, how long have you been improvising and now what did the... And it's not better, it's different. I think there's things that people who are new to improv have that we're trying to get back desperately. <laughs> yeah, if, if this is a self-question now based off what you've just said, Susan. If there was a thing that you, could, that you know about improv that you could forget or that you could unlearn, <laughs> what would that be? Oh, what would that be? Um, I think... I, I don't think there's anything specific. I think it's more that I want to um, have trouble remembering the rules more. <laughs> yeah. um, I, th I think the most damage I've done to myself uh, in terms of improv has been at 2 a.m. in bed being like, oh, why did I say that? Yeah. Um, so maybe the thing I would like to forget is it immediately after it happens. <laughs> <laughs> like, to make it completely disposable, maybe? <laughs> and, oh, and wouldn't see that if be that, nice? <laughs> that, like, delirium, uh, enlightened state would just living in that. And then, yeah. What about you, Tara? I think I would unlearn everything I know about status. And um, I think that's because that's one of the first things that you learn in improv and it's very helpful. And then you fall into these patterns, like I fall into the pattern of playing the same two different types of character, one low status, one high status. Um, and I just take on the tropes of what I think a low status person is and what I think a high status person is in, in scenes. And I would love to see if I could just not do that and and 
find find a way to create new characters who are completely uh, don't have any of the status tropes, but are one or the other, or are absent of status. I don't know. Keith Johnston, fuck me up. Is is my summary? You made you made me realize what I would get rid of, and this is going to be so controversial. Go for it. I would get rid of yes and. Ooh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but like, I guess, um, yeah, because it's good to have agency and go, you know, in a scene like, hey, if something happens that doesn't spark me with joy, let's throw that thing away and do the better scene on the interesting thing. Um, and characters can have opinions that are negative, and that's not necessarily blocking. And even if it is, it's not the end of the world. Um, let's go to McDonald's. Let's not. Let's go on a pirate ship. <laughs> I think yes and is, it's like in, if you're learning high school science, and they're like, this is the, this is the rule, and you learn that in yeah. year nine. And then in year 10, they're like, you know that rule we taught you? Forget about it. <laughs> and then and this is the new one. And then in year 11, they're like, you know those two rules? No, no, none of that. And as you get further and further through science, you're like, the thing that I was taught in year nine, it couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> and I think yes and is year nine science. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, printed on a damn t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, and yeah, thank you very much, all three of you, Tara, um, Ryan and Susan. This has been wonderful. Uh, stay tuned if you're listening to the podcast or look at the next podcast episode because there will be many more. Thank you, everyone, again. <laughs> This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Douglas, and made possible thanks to New Zealand Improvisation Trust and Creative New Zealand. The New Zealand Improv Festival ran 4th to the 16th of October 2021 at Tifanga Nui Wellington's Bats Theatre. Learn more about it at improvfest.nz or find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.